You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. That was good. That was good. Thank you. Welcome to Kingsway. We're glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, welcome, welcome. We are now in the last Sunday of a series to the book of Psalms in the Bible. Psalms is actually five books kind of conglomerated into one, and it's been said that the entire Bible speaks to us. So I don't know about you, but you open up your Bible and you come to church on Sunday and somebody teaches and you feel encouraged or challenged or rebuked or whatever it is. I got to live with that for five days before I come and give it to you. But it's also said that the book of Psalms speaks for us. And literally what happened for the first few hundred years of Christian history is uh, people would read the Psalms, and when they read the Psalms, they would then turn them into prayer back to God. And it was like somebody had verbalized what they were thinking and feeling. So there's Psalms of celebration and praise, there's Psalms of like great moments, and then there's Psalms of like hard stuff and difficult stuff. There's Psalms of wisdom and teaching and we're going to close our series. I just extended it by one week. I wanted to keep going and going and going, but I thought, hey, we better wrap this up sooner or later. So just one more week. And part of the reason I wanted to do this is there's so many friends of mine who are going through so many heavy things that I thought, I just want to give some practical wisdom to the body of Christ. So you may not be going through anything heavy right now. This message is for you. It's going to coach you on how to help somebody going through something heavy. Or you may be going through something heavy. And it's going to coach you on how to approach life as you're going through it. So as we've done throughout the series, I just want to encourage you to open a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you don't know how to use a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you or perhaps underneath you, depending on where you're sitting. If not, there's probably someone around you. And just do the thing where you literally open up to the middle. You're probably in Psalms. If not, close it and go a little bit this direction. Go to your left or go to your right and try it again two or three times. And if all else fails, everything will be on the screen. So I'm reading from the NIV, New International Version. The version in the seats is the NLT, the New Living Translation. So they won't be perfect, but you'll get a pretty good idea. All right, here we go. Psalm 42 you may notice, if you have a Bible open or used an app, it says, for the director of music, a masculine of the sons of Korah. I don't have time today to teach on who the sons of Korah are, but they wrote the second most amount of the Psalms. David wrote the most. They wrote the second most amount. And uh, we don't really know what a masculine is, but it's some direction to the person who put music to these words uh, of what style it's supposed to be in. Here we go. Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for you, God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. Well, people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one. With shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from, the Mount, from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? 
Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for yet I will praise him, my Savior and my God. Let's pray. God, uh, I don't know what's going on in the sons of Korah's lives. I don't know what they're experiencing. But there's obviously a depth, a heaviness, a heartache, a sorrow, something they are feeling in this moment, God, that's making them question where you are and what's happening. And uh, sometimes life feels that way for us, God. So I pray right now that you would meet us in this place. And God, maybe we're on a mountaintop. Maybe life is good. Everything's exciting. School's going back. We just went on vacation. And life is good. And God, what we need today is we need you to prepare us uh, to know better how to love and serve those around us who are going through hardship. And God, maybe uh, we're in a hard place. Maybe it's a loss of a job or a family member, or maybe it's a transition, a major transition that's causing some anxiety and heartache or fear. And God, whatever it is, we're just asking you would teach us from the psalm. You would encourage us, rebuke us, build us up, whatever it is, God, so that when we leave here today, we're better prepared to face the life that we have in front of us. And uh, we love you. We praise you, Father, for your goodness and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's jump in. So what I want to do is we don't have time to walk back through this entire psalm, but we do want to walk through certain pieces of it and just see what wisdom we have for us today. So uh, we don't, again, we don't know the context. We don't know what they're dealing with. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we don't know the context. Like, we have a hard time relating. There's some things going on in this psalm that I don't think any of you have anybody chasing you with swords. Okay, maybe if you have little boys. But most likely, most likely they aren't real swords and you're going to be okay. Now, I don't know where you live. Maybe where you live, there's a legitimate death threat on your life. Or maybe the job you perform. Maybe. I don't know. You know, maybe, I don't know. Maybe the Jack Ryan among us somewhere. I don't know. Maybe one of you works for the IMF. I'd love to meet you. Shake your hand. It'd be cool. Anyway, whatever it is going on in this person's life, in the sons of Korah, they're facing a legitimate fear from a legitimate enemy that's leaving them a little bit afraid. Take a look. Psalm 42, we're going to look at 7, 9, and 10. Just kind of a summary, those three verses. It says, uh, Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Ooh, that's a heavy, heavy place to be. Just to put this in context, this whole deep calls to deep. I love this analogy. Uh, the whole idea is the inner depths, the, the deepest parts of me are crying out to the deepest parts of God, right? Uh, there's a word in the New Testament, a Greek word for compassion, splagna. Splagnitzomai is one of the words we see translated. And Jesus will often see people hurting and suffering, and it says he splagnud. He, he literally felt something in the most literal rendering of that word we say compassion in English, but it literally means something deep inside him stirred. And this is going to sound funny, but the most literal translation would be, he had like a stirring in his bowel. And his bowel is not the way we translate bowel. It's like this, it's just this metaphoric reference to a deep part. Have you ever seen somebody suffering greatly and something inside you went, this isn't fair. That's what's happening in the context of Psalm 42. Whatever they're experiencing, the depth of their being is crying out to God. And I love the idea of the waves and breakers having swept over. Often when I'm doing a funeral for somebody who's lost a loved one, I tell them, you need to be ready for grief. But grief is going to come in waves, and you aren't going to expect it. 
You ever been in the ocean, and, and especially if there's like a riptide, and it grabs you and pulls you along, but even if not, just regular waves, and like one hits you, and it's big, and it's massive, and, and I was just at, at Myrtle Beach with my kids a couple months ago, and I'm watching them, and I'm making sure they're safe, and every once in a while, a wave would catch me off guard, where you kind of get the rhythm, you know when the next one's coming, but you weren't quite ready for as big as it was going to be, and it takes you down, and it knocks your feet out from under you, and you got to fight for a minute to figure out what's up, and what's down, and what's left, and what's right, and the sand is even moving underneath you, and you get your feet planted again, and then just as soon as that happens, another one comes. And sometimes there's a bunch of little ones in between, but then another big one comes, and it just knocks you down again. And that's how grief is, especially as it relates to funerals. Everybody rallies around you, family and friends come near, people are offering you meals and sending encouraging notes and stopping by to the point where it's exhausting, they're telling stories about the person's past, it's it's great, you're well-loved, and then everybody goes home. And goes back to their life. And they have to at some point. But you're left to figure out the pieces. But then an anniversary comes. Or Christmas comes. Or a birthday comes. Or you travel somewhere. Or you see something on TV, a movie that was like your movie. A song comes on the radio. It was your song. And all of a sudden, it just feels like this wave has crashed over you again. And the psalmist in Psalm 42 is just trying to express that kind of angst. It's like, I don't. I don't know what to do with this. Why have you forgotten me? What's powerful about this is all of the Psalms, especially Psalm 42, though, gives us permission to call out to God. The reason we've been encouraging you to find a quiet place and just get into the presence of God, especially when you're in a good place, right? When you're in this kind of place, it's almost easier because you need God, but even in a good place, there's a rhythm to life. Right? So when your feet are on solid ground, things are good so that when they fall apart, you know exactly where to go. You've already been there. That's kind of the point we want to get to you. But in this, we get permission. We get permission to cry out to God. God, where are you? See, I think there's a danger sometimes when we don't feel safe enough to cry out and say things. The Bible does say, I want to just cover this quickly. The Bible does say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So therefore, I should fear God. And that fear should come from a healthy place. You're bigger than me. You're smarter than me. You're wiser than me. But the fear of the Lord doesn't mean that I don't have permission to express what it is I'm feeling. We were never encouraged to just bottle it up and say, well, I guess he's God. I guess I, I, guess I don't. I, I can't ask him. I can't, I can't process it. The whole idea here is it's okay to come to a really big God who loves you a lot. And the scriptures are consistent on this. So even though uh, Adam and Eve, say for instance, they forgot the fear of the Lord and they sinned against God, the very first thing that God did was he covered them because he loved them. And he came closer to them and closer to them and closer to them so that they could be in his presence. God desires for us to sit in his lap and talk with him about whatever it is we're feeling in life. Look at verse 1 and 2. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. What a weird analogy. But I don't know if any of you are dog people. Anybody have a dog? Okay. I'm a dog guy, but I have a kid who's allergic to dogs, so I can't have dogs. I love dogs. But have you ever noticed dogs pant all day long, nonstop, right? If you show them food, they pant. If you throw a ball, they pant. If it's hot outside, they pant. If it's cold inside, they pant. They just pant. And I've been told it's because they sweat through their mouth. 
And just to be clear, this the same mouth you rationalize should kiss you because their mouth is cleaner than yours. Nobody? Come on, that's a little funny. This isn't how deers pant. Deers pant when they're going through it. Deers pant when the grind has caught up to them. Deers pant when they're running for their lives and they are depleted. And they pant because they're out of breath. Life has run them through. And they're craving a stream of water where they can find refreshment. So when you get that picture, that analogy, then the rest of this kind of comes alive. As the, the deer is panting for a stream of water to catch its breath from this grind, my soul, God, is thirsting for you, the living God. When, when can I go and meet with you? Again, the idea here is life is happening and I know the place to go. See, this isn't just about throwing out accusations at God. This is about saying, God, I need you. I believe you can help me. I believe you can save me. I believe you want to. So, God, I want to be with you. It comes from a faith place. One of the things I've seen in my time of being a pastor I was a middle school pastor and a high school pastor and then a campus pastor and now a lead pastor. And it's the same. It's the same across the board. For 20 years I've been doing this and it's the same. Our lives are so easily distracted by anything and everything else. It doesn't, doesn't matter if it's the pastor's family, by the way. It is so easy to get sidetracked by everything else going on in life. Sports or school or vacations or hobbies or you name it. Work. And God becomes a secondary thing that I'll get to when I have time or need to get there. But God desires to be first in our lives. He desires to be a constant refreshment and refillment to what we're going through. Life is depleting. It takes it out of you. This is why God built a weekly rhythm. That's why the early church gathered on the first day of the week, Sunday, to celebrate the resurrection. It was a weekly rhythm of going and being replenished and refilled so that we could go back out and face this world for what it is. And the psalmist here is going through something really hard and saying, for some reason, they're prevented. I can't go and be refilled. And so I feel even more deplenished. Is that a word, deplenished? I guess if you'd be replenished... There's a place where you're finally plenished. That's where we want to get. I am just making up stuff right now. I have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) Depleted is, I think, the word I was looking for. The psalmist is feeling depleted right now. What is happening? The psalmist is feeling depleted right now and just asking, when? When can I go? There must be a reason why they're cut off from being in the presence of God, and it is eating at them because they know where to go to find what they really need. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. That's a bad day. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? Do you hear the mocking in this? The belief is because things aren't going gangbusters, therefore God has abandoned them. This is consistently what the scriptures speak of when they tell us not to be judgmental of others. To be very careful not to judge before it's time. One of my favorite passages is super, super convicting and has been for me for years. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Take a look sometime. Paul is defending his own honor. And in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, look, I don't really care what any court thinks of me. I don't care what any judge, I don't care what any human being thinks of me. I only care what God thinks of me. 
Now, before you take that and go get a tattoo that says, only God can judge me, which is partly where that comes from, the context is Paul is feeling condemned and run through by the world, and he goes on and he says in 1 Corinthians 4, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. Do you catch the power in that? He's saying, even though I don't feel convicted, that doesn't mean I'm right. Because then he goes on and he says, I, we will all, we will all stand before God on judgment day, every single one of us. So don't judge anything before it's time. Let that day be the real revealer of how God felt about things. So part of what Paul is trying to say is, Look, I realize life is hard and life is complex and there's difficult issues and you got to figure them out and you got to navigate them. It's important that we have a clean conscience because if we don't, then that's obviously God. But just because I have a clean conscience doesn't mean I'm right. God will decide and I trust myself into God. So this is important because the psalmist is being judged by others saying, look, look at your life. There's no way God could be with you. And it's causing doubts. My foes are mocking me. They're saying to me, God can't be with you because if God was with you, this wouldn't be happening like this. And he's crying, God, help. Come on. I need you. I need you to show up and do something because this isn't going to work if you don't. And this, this may be the, the nugget you need, this right here. My tears have been my food day and night. It is okay to cry. Now, I know, I know, some of you, Crying is for sissies or wimps or whatever the phrase you want to stick in there is. Do you know studies have actually shown that, that crying is actually super, super helpful? In fact, there are three kinds of tears. There's a study done by harvardhealth.edu, I believe it is. You can look it up later. And uh, health.harvard.edu, I said it wrong. And um, there's three kinds of tears. There's like immediate tears that come when, when you get something in your eye, right? Or something irritates your eye. Like last night I was cleaning the shed then after with my boys and afterwards we made a fire and we were just like having a little marshmallow roast out on the little back patio. It was pretty nice. And um, the smoke was just getting our eyes and eyes were watering. That's normal. And it'll keep going if say a, a speck of you know, dust or dirt got in there. It'll keep making water. That's almost 98% water just trying to flush out and clean out what's going on in it. That's completely different. The third kind is emotional tears. And this quote by Leo Newhouse, he says this, the emotional tears, which flush stress hormones and other toxins out of our system, potentially offers the most health benefits. Researchers have established that crying releases oxytocin and endogenous opioids, also known as endorphins. These feel-good chemicals help ease both physical and emotional pain. They've actually shown by not releasing emotional feelings, emotional stress, by bottling them up, it's actually damaging to your body. It's damaging to your spirit. It's damaging to your mind. So next time you're watching Rudy, okay, let's just be honest for a minute. Next time life hurts, it's okay to let it out. In fact, Pixar made an entire movie about this. It's called Inside Out. And if you haven't seen Inside Out, you should definitely watch it today. It's a great little movie. And basically, um, these are the emotions living inside all of our bodies and minds. There's probably way more than this. And I don't have time to explain the whole movie, but these would be the emotions living inside a character named Riley. Riley is a teenage girl who's just going through some really difficult stuff. And uh, here we have, and I may get these names slightly wrong, but I think we have rage, anger. We have sadness, 
we have joy, we have fear or anxiety, and I think this is disgust, if I'm saying correctly. And uh, these different characters represent different emotions that Riley has. And uh, it's very, uh, I think it's kind of funny that there's times where joy gets afraid, <laughs> and uh, sadness brings joy, and, and it's a little bit confusing. But regardless, if you track with what the movie is trying to say, Joy is kind of like the one in charge. If you notice, they made her biggest and brightest. And, and basically throughout the movie, everybody is trying to get Riley, this teenage girl, to just have joy all the time, joy. But Riley has many other emotions. Sometimes Riley's mad, and sometimes she's disgusted, and sometimes she's afraid, and sometimes she's sad. But by not acknowledging the actual feelings that she has, just by always trying to make her happy, she ends up actually not becoming who she needs to become. It's a great little movie, and there's this really powerful moment where joy and sadness have had a conversation or is having a conversation with one of Riley's favorite toys called Bing Bong, and I realize just saying Bing Bong makes this whole sermon funny, but basically what's happening is Bing Bong is coming to grips. This is Bing Bong. Bing Bong is coming to grips with the fact that uh, he is no longer Riley's favorite toy, that she's growing up and leaving things behind. And this conversation erupts between Bing Bong's sadness and joy, who's not pictured here. And Bing Bong says, no, 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 no. You can't take my rocket to the dump. Riley and I are going to the moon. Oh, oh, Riley can't be done with me. And Joy, just trying to kind of wash over things, says, hey, it's going to be okay. We can fix this. We just need to get back to headquarters. Which way to the train station? And Bing Bong says, I had a whole trip planned for us. Joy, hey, who's ticklish, huh? Here comes the tickle monster. Hey, Bing Bong, look at this. Oh, here's a fun game. You point to the train station. We all go there. Won't that be fun? Come on, let's go to the train station. And Sadness walks up. And just says to Bing Bong, I'm sorry they took your rocket. They took something that you loved. It's gone forever. Joy says, sadness, don't make him feel worse. And sadness says, sorry. And then Bing Bong says, it's all I had left of Riley. And sadness says, I bet you and Riley had great adventures. Bing Bong says, they were wonderful. Once we flew back in time, we had breakfast twice that day. Joy just gets frustrated. Sadness! And Sadness says, that sounds amazing. I bet Riley really liked it. And Bing Bong starts crying. Oh, she did. We were best friends. Joy can't even look at them. She's so Disgusted. <laughs> but sadness is, yeah, it's sad. And all of a sudden, Bing Bong pops up and says, I'm okay now. Come on, the stray station's this way. And they take off. If only difficult things could be resolved in five minutes. <laughs> Anybody who's had a meltdown from a child understands <laughs> it usually takes a little bit, little bit longer. But there's something really powerful in that scene that I don't want you to miss or to lose that the Psalms teach us. And that is this. When a friend is grieving, your greatest resource is your presence. I'm terrible at this. I'm just going to be honest. It's taken a lot of training and classes and failing. Uh, one time in my last church, I had a volunteer 
whose house caught on fire and he and his wife lost everything. They didn't, nobody, no, no animals were, were taken, no humans lost life, but they lost everything else. We had just bought our first house and I saw what our, uh, uh, our fire insurance plan would cover and I was all excited. Like two weeks before this, I was telling my wife, oh man, everything we have is like a hand-me-down from somebody else. Wouldn't it be great if our house caught on fire, we lost everything? We could buy everything else brand new. This would be great. And so my volunteer came up to me after the service, and I'd heard about it. I said, hey, I'm just, you know, how are you guys doing? Checking in. And he was talking to me about it. After they talked for about five minutes, I said, but look, isn't this going to be great? I mean, you have great insurance plan. You can go out and buy everything new. His wife started crying and just walked off. My wife looked at me and said, are you an idiot? And I had to look at her and say, I think I am. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm joy. I'm trying to make everybody happy when they need to just grieve. See, there's a power in just sitting with someone while they're struggling. If you go to the book of Job, one of my favorite books in the Bible, Job, um, he's lost everything, almost. I mean, he's lost all of his businesses, have burned to the ground or been wiped out. His kids were killed, and the only thing he has left is a really hurting, grieving wife who is part of Satan's plan to trip him up and get him to curse God. Not joking, read it for yourself. But in Job chapter 2, it says, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, and if you're looking for names for kids, maybe you're pregnant right now, start in the book of Job. (laughs) When they heard about all the troubles that had come upon Job, they sent out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Do you see how the friends got together and kind of commiserated? You know what our friend needs? Our friend needs our presence. Our friend needs us to be with him. So they dropped everything, they cleared their schedules, and they went. Then it says, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. And they, they moved from sympathy to empathy. They moved to this, like, I'm not just watching you, I'm actually feeling your pain watching you suffer. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And I don't know if it sounds weird, but actually for thousands of years, this was a normal way to show lament, grief, repentance. You'll notice this many times in the New Testament when the Pharisees are mad about something Jesus says, it'll say they tore their clothes. And many times they went and grabbed dust and threw it up on their heads. It was a, it was a sign of I'm grieving. This is terrible. And his friends, when they see his suffering, they join him in the pain. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Man, we all need friends like that. Except that's where their wisdom ended. Read the book of Job. There are some who argue the book of Job is not a literal historical book. I'm not one of those people. I believe it is actual story history that happened. But they argue it because the rest of the book reads like a primer, like, like a training manual on how to comfort somebody in their grief. Because basically the rest of the book is Job's friends start speaking out of line. They all start trying to be joy in the moment. Some are like trying to build them up, prop them up. Others are rebuking Job. Job, God did this to you because you sinned. God wouldn't let this happen if you hadn't done something evil. You need to repent. But see, if you read the book of Job, the first chapter and a half clearly establishes Job's righteousness before God. God was not punishing Job. This was not God inflicting this on Job. 
So by the time we get to the end of the book, what happens is each friend takes their turn to try to help Job, and they don't really help him at all. But each time, Job gets more and more bitter at God. Because, see, that's what happens when we open our mouths outside of what we're supposed to. We can actually make a situation worse. And so Job starts to accuse God, finally. Okay, God, where are you? Why, are, why, aren't you, why did you let this happen? So by the time we get to the end of the book, God finally shows up. And he says, okay, Job, you've been questioning my character because of your pain. Now, let me ask you a few questions, Job. And this is literally one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Though I'll be honest, in my moments of pain, I do not like this part of the Bible. Because for about three chapters, God says, okay, Job, you tell me, where were you when I put the stars in the sky? Do you know? Where were you? Oh, you weren't made yet? Okay. Well, Job, where were you when I separated the water from the seed? Where were you? Can you do that, Job? You can't do that? Okay. Tell me, Job, where are the storehouses of snow and rain? Do you know where they are stored up? Can you release them whenever you want? Tell me, Job, can you explain lightning streaking across the sky? Job, where are you when I'm feeding the lion in the middle of nowhere that you don't even know exists, but I'm taking care of it? Job, can you explain to me the ostrich or the horse? And he goes on. And a couple times, Job tries to make this, this conversation stop. He's like, you're right. I'm a fool. I should have kept my mouth shut. And God's like, no, 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 no. You be quiet and you listen. I'm not done with you yet. And he goes on. And by the end of it, Job repents and he says, I was wrong to question your character, God. See, when we're calling out and asking God, like, where are you? We have to be very careful. It's not accusatory. It's seeking God, I need you, and you're not here. I don't see you. You're not present. Where are you? It's not, how dare you? Do you know who I am? It's a big difference. But by the end of the book, God rebukes all of Job's friends. He's like, you guys are wrong. You do not understand what was happening here. You've been given bad advice. And Job, just like Jesus, sacrifices to redeem his friends. It's a powerful story about how to sit with somebody when they're struggling. And the big picture, I would say, is this Christian community has profound healing power. The goal of having a place where it's okay to not be okay. See, the rest of the phrase is, as long as we don't stay that way, but the principle here is this, until I am emotionally ready to engage a logical conversation, then we just sit in it. A really good friend will just sit in it and not try to tell you, oh, is it this exciting that you have a great insurance policy? A good friend will just sit and they won't judge you and they won't condemn you. They'll be with you. Psalm 42 goes on and says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. I told you the word throng is a weird word a couple weeks ago. It just has to do with the masses, the multitudes. There's a heavenly throng as the angelic hosts are gathered together and they're praising God right now for all they see and know. But that there's an earthly throng. This is a throng. Right now, we are in a throng. And the throng is just the masses gathered together to celebrate God. So all the psalmist is saying is, my life hurts. It's miserable. My tears are my food. I'm panting for you. I can't wait to be in your presence again with all the other believers. I can't wait. And see, that's the power of this weekly rhythm is the gathering together and saying, look, I may not feel it this week. I may not even need it this week. This message might not be about where I am this week. That's okay. 
because there's training that's coming for a future day and a later day. There's somebody around me that needs this, and I need them, and they need me, and that's called Christian community. And that's the end game for all of us is to be a part of something where it's safe to come in and say, I need you. The problem for most of us is we lack the confidence to be vulnerable. That just hurts some people. Keep your elbows to yourselves, all right? Nobody needs your help here. See, there's a huge difference between honest and vulnerable. My, my, my pastor, who mentored me for years, he, he calls this like the pyramid of influence, or sometimes he calls it the circle of influence, depending on which analogy he wants to use. But the whole idea here is, as a Christian, I'm honest with everybody. That's like the bottom layer of this pyramid, right? I'm honest with everybody. So this is not an example this weekend. My wife was gone this weekend with one of my sons out of town, and um, so I have the other two. So just this has happened before. Imagine this. My wife and I have had big fights before Sunday. Now, let's say after church, my wife and I had a big fight on Saturday, and uh, I go to Walmart, and uh, I'm just checking out. And the guy at Walmart says, how are you today? As a Christian, I have to be honest. So I'm not going to lie to him and say, life is good all the time, all the time. Life is good. <laughs> no, I'm going to be honest. I might say, I'm okay. But I'm not going to go any deeper than that. The guy checking me out at Walmart that I've never met before, he doesn't need or deserve or probably even care to go any deeper than that. That's just wisdom. I don't give everybody everything, but somebody needs it. So that next kind of rung up the line here on the pyramid is as I get a little closer, that might be like, say, the whole body of Christ, right? Like, let's say I ran into some of you in the hallway. I don't know you super well, but I've seen you for many years. I know your name. We've talked many times. We don't have a great personal relationship. And you say, hey, how are you today? I might say, you know what? It's been a difficult weekend for my family. And I'm having a hard time keeping my head in the game. I've got to stand up and deliver God's word. But uh, would you just say a prayer for me? And if I know you well enough, I might say, would you just come over here and pray with me real quick? Like, it's that next level of honesty, right? It's been hard for my family. I'm not going to say, I've been mean and rude to my wife all weekend, and I really need to repent, but I don't want to. Because she's wrong. Anyway, it's what I'm probably thinking. Anyway, but that next layer, that next layer up, the point, the tip, and there might be five people in a lifetime that ever get up there. But it's a place where you could be completely vulnerable, completely known. They're not going to judge you. They're not going to condemn you. You could go to them and say, here's what's going on. Here's the pressures I'm facing. Here's the temptations I'm dealing with. Here's what's going on in my life. And they're not going to throw a stone. They're not going to leave you there. They might let you for a little bit, just get off the emotion and put it all out there. They're going to pray with you. If you need rebuke, they're going to call you out very lovingly and gently. At one point, Paul says, rebuke an older man as you would a father. The whole idea is not that we don't rebuke older men. It's that we do it with such respect and gentleness. We're very careful about that. And that's the idea here, that we love each other enough to speak the truth and love. So whether you need encouragement or whether you need rebuke, we're there. The problem for most of us is we lack the confidence to be vulnerable with anybody. So we're playing games with each other. And we never really find what we ultimately need. C.S. Lewis has a very long conversation about this. It does a much better job. I'm just going to grab a snippet. But he says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. In fact, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. 
It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Think about the vulnerability of God giving us his one and only son, knowing we would kill him. But it would be worth it in the end. So what do we do with all of this stuff that we have sitting in front of us? It's very simple. This is a very, very oversimplified answer, but it is. It's just the truth. Ready? The key is to preach the gospel to each other and to ourselves. What do I mean by the gospel? God loves us. He's for us. He's with us. He's redeeming us. If I got a sin pattern that needs broken, he's with me. He's saved me. He wants to free me. If I'm struggling to see where God is, maybe I need to see him and you just sitting with me. I'll never forget, there was a guy named Wayne, and he grew a large church in Lexington, Kentucky. He grew it to about 2,000. Today it runs in like 15,000 or some crazy number. I don't remember how big it is. Huge. And uh, before he passed away, before he handed the baton off to the next generation, they wrote a memoir of his life. And I'll never forget, I grabbed the memoir. I never read it. I just flipped through and read a couple stories. And one of the stories jumped out at me because this one lady in the church, if I remember correctly, she had recently lost somebody, and I think it was her son. It was a child, I believe. It was just really heavy. She was mad, just mad, mad, mad at God. And Wayne showed up. She had some questions because he represented God as the pastor. Like, I have some questions. You need to answer. Why, where is God? Why is it? And all these things. And Wayne just showed up and cried. And she said, I was mad at him. I don't need you to cry. I need you to answer these things. And he just kept showing up and crying. And in his memoir, she's like, and I look back now and I realize just how much I needed that. Sometimes the greatest gospel you could preach is just continuing to show up. Just be. You don't have to have all the answers. It's hard. It's sad. It's lonely. It's painful. And God is good. Think about this. Psalm 42.11 ends with this. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. That's like the psalmist was reminding themselves and everybody else, I'm still sad, but I have to now turn my attention. The power of what I think inside out brings us is it encourages us to sit with our emotions for a bit. But I gotta tell you, your emotions cannot run your life. At some point, you have to logically work through, process through those. And that's where the psalm ends. The psalm tells us, yes, deal with your sadness. Deal with your frustration. Deal with your anger. Deal with all of it. Put it out there. Take it to God. Take it to others. But don't stay there. See, in my opinion, inside out never gets us where it needs to go. We need to come back into the presence of others and remind ourselves, why am I so downcast? I know, I know with confidence that God is with me. I will yet praise him again, my Savior and my God. So put my hope in him. Great song, if you want to check this out later, by Shane and Shane, uh, Christian worship artists. They actually wrote a psalm, based, a song based off Psalm 42. It is called uh, Loudest Praise. And there's this line where Shane says, tune my heart to bless your name. I play guitar. That should not impress anybody. It's really bad. But I can kind of make a lot of noise on the guitar. I'll tell you what, you'll know immediately if you're playing guitar if one of your strings is out of tune because when you hit it, it just doesn't sound right. That's the beauty behind this line here. There's something that I'm singing, there's something in my life going on, and it's out of tune with everything else. So 
tune my heart to bless your name. Even in the pain, even in the suffering, even in the struggle, God, would you tune my heart to be able to bless your name no matter what? I want to end the same place we've ended this whole series. This is our conclusion of the whole series. I want to ask you to take out your communion cups. The top part of that cup has the bread. That represents the body of Jesus. So as you're coming into his presence, I just want you to remember God was most vulnerable with you at the cross. The bottom part is the juice. It represents his blood that washes away our sin. It makes us right with him. We can come into daddy's lap in the fear of the Lord to sit in his lap and be blessed by him. And I wrote a prayer. You could pick up a prayer card out here at our Connect Hub or grab it off our app. I just want to encourage you to pray this as you need it. I'm going to start this prayer, and literally I'm going to say, in Jesus' name, amen, and that's your time to go and talk to God and say whatever you need to say with whatever you're dealing with. Here we go. Father, thank you for your goodness and faithfulness to me. Today, I remind myself of your presence. You are with me. You are always with me. In the same way that Jesus felt isolated on the cross and under the weight of condemnation by his enemies, I feel the weight of life right now, too. Oh, God of my life, direct your love toward me as I put my hope in you and know I will rise to praise you again. Help me to remember this truth throughout today and into tomorrow. In Jesus' name.